0: Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. Okay, ladies, if you could find a seat. Open up to your notes page for this chapter. I'm going to introduce to you uh, my good friend Shannon. She did a fantastic lesson on the Levitical priesthood last semester in our um, Exodus Leviticus Numbers Deuteronomy study, and so she's going to follow that up today, um, helping us to understand how Jesus is like Melchizedek. So if you would join me, we're going to pray for her and turn it over to her. Father, we're excited for what you have to show us through your servant Shannon. We thank you for her willingness uh, to share with us. And God, we're expecting to hear from you and not from Shannon. So would you give us a heart, um, Father, to receive whatever it is you want to teach us? And would you give us courage to go out and put it to practice? And would you give us um, just the motivation to share with one another how you are uh, encouraging us and changing us? We love you and thank you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Let's jump right into week six, Hebrews seven and eight. Um, I wanted to start with these summary slides that Amy put together for us last week um, because I think it's great to review as we really try and love God with all of our minds. We're thinking critically about the text in context, how the letter is organized. So the author's making his case. He's better than angels. Warning number one, pay attention so you won't drift away. Jesus is better than any other human, even Moses. He's better than the high priest. He's better than the promised land. Number, uh, I'm, I'm skipping ahead. He's better than the promised land. Warning number two, be careful that you don't fall away. And then we see in chapters four and five, that Jesus is better than the high priest, followed by warning number three. Don't be dull. Stay persevere till the end. And now we're in chapters seven and eight. Jesus is better than Melchizedek. Who? That was what the ladies at my table were saying. Who? So, I'm excited today to tackle Melchizedek. If seeing the author of Hebrews make these Melchizedek connections doesn't build your confidence in Scripture, nothing will. It's absolutely incredible. Just a few verses in Genesis, a single verse in Psalms centuries later, and the author of Hebrews weaves together this incredible argument in favor of the supremacy of Christ. It's important to remind ourselves the Jewish people would have had absolutely no concept of fellowship with God apart from the priesthood. This might have been part of why these folks were tempted to go back to what they knew. There was no um, fellowship with God that they were used to, the, the sacrifices in the temple. So the author of Hebrews knows he needs to give them more evidence to really convince them that Jesus is their new, better, high priest. So not only is he a better high priest, he takes it one step further. He says, I told you he's a better high priest. I'm taking it up a notch. He's part of a better priestly order. Jesus represents a better priestly order, and it's called the order of Melchizedek. So how does he go about making his case? He says to his readers, Jesus as high priest is not anything that should be a surprise to you. A non-Levite priest shouldn't freak you out either. Remember Melchizedek? I already mentioned him in this letter before, and now I'm going to unpack that, explain what I mean. You saw in your homework this week, Genesis 14. It's this seemingly tangential anecdote about Abraham meeting a priest king named Melchizedek. We talked about it last semester in Leviticus when we studied the priesthood. <clears throat> and she had you find in your homework some parallels between Jesus and Melchizedek. And the author saying here to his Jewish brothers, You and I know that Abraham is the original Jew. He's the real deal. But both Abraham and Melchizedek recognize Melchizedek as the greater party between the two. Otherwise, Melchizedek would not have dared to condescend to offer a blessing if they didn't both understand that Melchizedek was the superior one. It'd be like if I came up to Cindy Baird and I said, Cindy, I'd like to mentor you in the scriptures. It wouldn't happen. I'd say, today's your lucky day. I'm going to take you under my wing and teach you all that I have learned about the Bible. It's not meant to be a knock on me. It's not a knock on Abraham. It's just a fact. She's got a greater portion of the blessing because of her time spent handling the Word of God, and I want to be like her one day. Um, That's kind of, he's not dissing Abraham. He's saying that this is better. He says, I'm talking about a different priestly order, a better one than the one we've been under all these years. It actually predates the Levitical priesthood, the order of Melchizedek, the king of Shalom, priest of the most high God. He writes those names in Hebrews. That's important. Now, what does it mean to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek? You and I don't talk a lot about orders. A religious order, a monastic order is a group of people bound together by a religious vow. And here's where my Catholic heritage gives me a little advantage. You've got Carmelite ones, Jesuit priests, Franciscan priests, all these different priestly orders that have different vows, different symbols, different practices. Here you see some Benedictine monks. These guys are known for their chants. Here's a Renaissance painting of St. Dominic. You see his tonsured head, it's shaved except for this ring around the ears and a black cloak over his priestly robes. Dominicans are sometimes called black friars for their cloak. Carmelites are called white friars for their white cloaks. Um, Franciscans, gray friars, etc. So this order is very special to me. I don't know if you recognize this outfit, but these ladies are nuns in Mother Teresa's order called the Missionaries of Charity. They take vows of poverty. They wear the white sari with the blue stripes. And what about this prestigious order? (laughs) These guys are known for their deep devotion to bumper cars. I'm kidding. They're great philanthropists. So an order of Leviticus would have its own systems, its own rules, its own traditions. So let's read in chapter 7, beginning in verse 11, why the Levitical priesthood was insufficient. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. The author is saying, you and I think only of the Aaronic priesthood, but there's always been a different one that's better. This point would have been really revolutionary, maybe even scandalous for these Jews to take hold of. He's saying here, the Levitical priesthood was never meant to work completely. Otherwise, there would have never been another need for a different one. So let's keep reading in verse 13. For the one of whom these things are spoken, Jesus, belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Now, I'm not a rule follower, so this completely blows my mind. I love this. God's completely unchanging character means that not even God himself in the incarnate Jesus is going to break the Levitical rules about ministering in the temple, Jesus didn't elbow his way into the temple to serve at the altar when he was on earth, though of course he had every right to. That was for the Levites. That's what the law said. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. You may remember the story of King Uzziah. He's not a Levite, but he burned incense and the priest cursed him with a punishment of leprosy for the rest of his life. Uh, later on in Hebrews chapter eight, verse four, it says, Jesus wasn't a priest on earth at all because that would have been against the law. Again, I boggle my mind. I don't like rules. So that Jesus would take care to, to follow those rules, um, I think just really says something about the importance of the law and, and the scripture. So the author of Hebrews says, Melchizedek's priesthood, this is a whole different ball game, but you don't have to take my word for it. I sounded like LeVar Burton just then. Um, he turns from the Genesis narrative to Psalm 110. All my 80s babies liked that. I don't think she had us look Psalm 110 up, so I've got it here together because it's so important when you see these quotations in Scripture to go back to where they're actually found in the Old Testament and see them in context. This is a Davidic prophecy written by David um, a messianic prophecy and has illusions show up over and over and over again in the Gospels, really throughout the whole Bible. I think my ESV study Bible had more than 50 cross-references attributed to this little seven-verse psalm. So the author of Hebrews is saying, look, Moses said it in Genesis, then 400 years later, David said it. So let's look at it together. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. That's royal imagery here. Rule in the midst of your enemies. More royal imagery. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So by invoking this Davidic Messiah prophecy here by calling Melchizedek king of Salem and priest of the Most High God, the author of Hebrews is making a profound argument. Jesus is the ultimate priest and king, the priest king. Now, why is this so earth shattering? Remember Uzziah? Don Carson gave an excellent sermon on Psalm 110 at the Gospel Coalition conference years ago. You can find it on YouTube. But Carson says, Kings could never do the priestly duties. Remember what happened to King Saul? He got tired of waiting for Samuel and he offered the burnt offerings himself. And for that disobedience, God dethroned Samuel. I mean Saul eventually <clears throat> and put David on the throne instead. The office of priest and king were always separate. And David, who wrote this psalm, would have known that because he's the one who inherited the throne uh, following Saul's sin. Yet David himself wore a linen, a linen, um, how to pronounce it, a fod? ephod, and offered sacrifices even though he was the king, pointing forward to his descendant someday who would be both priest and king. This is a simplified version of the chart that I did um, last semester. It would contrast Melchizedek and Jesus. Melchizedek was a priest of all, just walking around Mesopotamia offering to bless people and (laughs) As the priest of the Most High God, he was king of only his little clan. Jesus is priest of some, those of us in him, but he is king overall. He's the king of kings to whom every knee will bow. Not only does Jesus represent a better priestly order, he's a better priest himself. Just as Melchizedek is better than Abraham and Levi, Jesus is better than Melchizedek, Abraham, and Levi all put together. Why is he the better high priest? Cassie told us a couple of reasons in week four. He's a better high priest because of how he withstood temptation, how he suffered. Amy told us last week he's been made high priest by a better oath. And now the author of Hebrews is giving us some more reasons why his readers should be convinced that Jesus really is the best high priest. First, it's because he lives forever, he has the wrong biological ancestry. But his qualifications are just a little bit more impressive. He's the immortal son of God. That's a pretty good thing to have on your resume. He lives as priest forever and ever and ever and ever. So he's able to save us completely to the uttermost. He lives to make intercession for us. He's not like the other priest who has to offer sins every day, twice a day, first for himself, then for us. He did it once for all, allowing us to draw near to God through him. Lord, help us keep the awe of that. He is better. For it was indeed fitting, this is verse 26, that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Lots of attributes here in this verse that you can add to your attribute appendix in the back of your book. So Jesus represents a better priestly order. He himself is a better priest. And moving into chapter eight, we see that he ministers in a better place of priestly service. We're gonna cover this with a lot more detail next week's homework. So we're not gonna belabor this point, but I wanted to say the shadow imagery really came alive for me this week. Um, we've been talking about shadow, um, the shadow concept for the whole time we've been studying the Pentateuch. So was that for two years now we've been talking about shadow, but I, it didn't really click for me. I'd been thinking of like shadow meaning fuzzy, or I don't know why, I don't know why, but it didn't really click for me. This is probably like, duh, for most of you guys. But um, chapter eight, verse five says that the Levitical priests on earth serve a copy of and shadow of the heavenly things. Seeing it with copy and a shadow really kind of helped it click for me. Um, better late than never. Um, it was a light bulb moment for me. You don't get a shadow without the original thing to make the shadow. Like when my mom used to do like bulletin board murals using those uh, overhead projectors to trace the picture on the wall. Colossians says that the law was a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The thing actually making the shadow is Jesus. I love that. You guys already knew that, but I was really excited by that. For example, like the Ronsleben's who are in Ukraine, as we speak, they've been proudly looking at and sharing with us pictures and videos of Sweet Lara for six years now. Now when they get home, hopefully soon, Are they still gonna be whipping out their phones to show us pictures of Lyra? No, she'll be here in the substance. That'd be silly if Lyra's sitting right next to her on the couch for Kim to show me a picture of what Lyra looks like on her phone. The author of Hebrews is saying the temple, the tent, the priesthood, all of it is just a shadow, just a promise of the real thing where Jesus ministers. Jesus is the substance and his temple is the actual one. We studied a lot of this symbolism last semester. <clears throat> Excuse me. Look at the gate to enter the, the courtyard. I am the gate. Whoever enters me through me will be saved. Then you get to the bronze altar where the animal sacrifice was tied. There's no approaching God, the presence of God, without the shedding of blood. And then you see the bronze laver right there in the middle, that washes the priests, just like Jesus is the living water that wells up in us a spring of eternal life. The lampstand, Jesus is the light of life in all mankind. The showbread, Jesus is the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never grow hungry. You have the veil, his body is the veil that separates us from the Holy of Holies and he's torn in two from top to bottom. So we have access to the Holy of Holies. Jesus is both the high priest and the lamb at the same time. Better priest, better priesthood, better place of priestly service. Now the print here is kind of small. I'm sure you're not going to be able to read all of this. I liked this outline. I'm going to have Amy send a link to it so that you can read it a little more carefully. I don't know the person that wrote this. I tried to examine it carefully to make sure there's no heresy in there, but I didn't, so I couldn't find any. But the reason why I wanted to include it is because it shows Jesus as the light, the new covenant, and you can kind of see the shadow. That's his divine throne. For example, the top one, that's his divine throne in heaven. And that shadow, the promise is the human tent on earth. And so this person has taken the second half of Hebrews and kind of divided this up into Old, com- old Covenant promises, Old Covenant sh- shadows, copies of what's actually fulfilled in the New Covenant. It brings us to our last point, the New Covenant. Jesus guarantees a better covenant. Christ's ministry is not just better, but it's much more excellent because it's based on a better covenant enacted on better promises. Um, I would highly commend this book to you. It's, called, it's a new book called Even Better Than Eden um, by Nancy Guthrie, who wrote our um, Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament series. And um, she traces nine themes throughout Scripture and the, the thesis of the book is that the story always gets better as it goes on. So nine themes throughout all of Scripture does she follow, um, covenant being one of them, a new city. It's really amazing. And I think this book has had a lot to do with why I'm kind of understanding this shadow concept uh, more clearly. Particularly if you didn't do the studies, it's a, it's a, some of it's repetitive from what we did. Um, in those studies, but if you didn't do those studies and you're feeling a little behind the curve, I really highly recommend this book as a great summary of um, seeing the scripture as one connected story. And this covenant is much more excellent. The author says, don't act like I'm making this up. Jeremiah already told you. He starts quoting Jeremiah. I will establish a new covenant, not like the one I made with their ancestors, Instead of writing the law on tablets, instead of writing the law on scrolls, I'll put it in their minds. I'll write it on their hearts. They won't rely on their Levite neighbor to bring them to me. They will all know me from the least to the greatest. I'm paraphrasing here. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In the homework, she had you look at what does this verse mean for how we should consider our sin, how we should consider his sacrifice, how we should consider his grace and our fellowship with him. I love all this resolve throughout this whole passage in Jeremiah. I will, I will, I will, I will do these things. I will be merciful. I will remember their sins no more. Is that hard for you to believe? It's hard for me sometimes. The new covenant makes the old one obsolete. It's like when you update your will, there's a clause there at the end of your will that says, This last will and testament supersedes and makes void any other preceding testaments, yada, yada, yada. The new has come, the old has gone. This is the message that the author of Hebrews is telling his friends. Now, did God change his mind? Did he think, oh, this old covenant didn't work out. I got to come up with something new. Are we in plan B? Not at all. This is the very definition of planned obsolescence here. Christ was slain from the foundation of the world. A new covenant was always coming. And the author of Hebrews just irrefutably proved it in these two chapters. So how do we take hold of this better covenant? How does this affect our day-to-day life? I love what Spurgeon says about this verse here. He says, suppose you're under a sense of sin. Something has revived in you a recollection of past guilt. Or maybe you've sadly stumbled this very day and Satan, the accuser, whispers, you will surely be destroyed. You have sinned. Now you go to the great father, you open up Hebrews, go to chapter eight, verse 12, put your finger on it and say, Lord, you have an infinite, boundless, inconceivable mercy entered into covenant with me, a poor sinner, seeing that I believe in the name of Jesus. And now I ask you, God, have respect unto your own covenant. You have said, I will be merciful toward their wrongdoings. Oh God, be merciful to mine. I will not remember their sins any longer. Lord, remember no more my sins. Forget forever my iniquity. That is the way the covenant affects your day-to-day life. When under a sense of sin, run to the clause which meets your case. You have a remedy. If you're renting a place, things aren't working out, there's a clause in that contract gives you a remedy on how to fix things. This is an incredible clause in this covenant. We have a remedy. Jesus is our advocate, our mediator, our defense attorney, drawing us near to God, our judge, through this better hope. Let's pray. I'm paraphrasing an, an old Puritan prayer here, so let's pray together. Father, you have taught me the necessity of a mediator a Messiah, to be embraced in love with all my heart, as king to rule me, as prophet to guide me, as priest to take away my sin and death, and this by faith in your beloved son who teaches me not to guide myself, not to obey myself, not to try and rule and conquer sin, but to cleave to the one who will do it all for me. You've made known to me that to save me is Christ's work, but to cleave to him by faith is my work. And with this faith is the necessity of my daily repentance as a mourning for the sin which Christ by his grace has removed. Lord, may we live always near the cross. Amen.